This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Matthew begins. But the, the problem with that, big, huge, major problem with that, if Jesus is a created being, then he is created like you and I and the angels and is not eternal, therefore he cannot be God. Huge, huge problem. And that's one of the reasons why Jehovah, let me just get this out at the beginning, it has nothing to do with today's message, you need to hear it. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians because they deny the deity of Christ. If you say that Jesus Christ is not God, you're not a Christian, bottom line, uh, because Jesus Christ has to be God to deliver us from our sins, has to be. If a random guy who was a created being died for our sins, you and I are still in our sins. But if God became a man and went to the cross as payment for our sins, then you and I can be redeemed and be forgiven. And so the deity of Christ is huge. And if Jesus just came on the scene in the Gospels or in the New Testament, then the whole first portion of the Bible has nothing to say about Jesus. That doesn't even logically make sense and definitely biblically doesn't hold water. So... We're going to, through this study of typology, take a look in the Old Testament and find the pictures of Jesus Christ that we find in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of Jesus, and this is God's design. There's not a single book of the Old Testament that you can pick out that doesn't in some way point forward to the person of Jesus Christ. You just can't do it. It's, it's all there 100%. Now, some are more explicit. Some are more implicit. Some are a picture or a pattern. But Jesus Christ and what he would do is always there, even in the Old Testament. And the story told by the Old Testament is full of Christological significance. And God's plan escalates to the defining moment in, in human history, the appearing of Jesus Christ. And so the entire Old Testament is this build, 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 build until it gets to, again, like we, just like we talked about this morning, the part that all of human history was anticipating, and that is the birth of our Savior. But the Old Testament is simply the build up to that. It, it hurts my heart sometimes. And again, I was, I was raised in a church that kind of taught this, uh, again, either explicitly or implicitly, that the Old Testament is kind of just a lot of history, but the New that's problematic for a hundred different reasons that we can't unpack tonight. But know, know this, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Genesis is as valuable to you as, you know, the book of Romans. Amen. It's all the word of God. So when people say, well, the Old Testament's not really that important, don't worry about it, it's just a bunch of history, you miss the significance of the Word of God. And so we've got to have the Old Testament. Um, some false teachers today will say things like, we can unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament because we don't need it. Uh, just know, when you hear somebody say that we don't need the Old Testament, that person is a false teacher. Guaranteed. Take it to the bank. Because we need the totality of the Word of God and to think that there's parts of Scripture that are unimportant uh, is to say that God gave us a little bit of fluff. If the Bible is the story of God's redemption through Jesus, he wouldn't leave Jesus missing in 77% of his word. He would fill every page with Jesus. We often say that the Bible is God's redemption story for mankind. The Old Testament makes up 77% by volume of the, of the Bible that we have. Why would he leave Jesus and, and relegate him simply to 23% of his word if Jesus is the most important? No, no, no. Jesus can be found all throughout the Bible, and we must, must read the Bible with that type of anticipation, that type of looking. Now, we have to do it carefully. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but it's important to know that this is God's design and plan that we would find Jesus all throughout the scriptures. God already had his redemption planned for you and I before he laid the foundation of the world. 
the, the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. Therefore, at the beginning of the foundation of the world, you will find Jesus Christ. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But if we read the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, it says there's nothing that was made that wasn't made by Jesus Christ himself. And so then we can read backwards and say, Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. That was God the Son that was present at creation, creating the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1. And so again, we have the luxury now of having a completed canon of Scripture that we can read all 66 books as God intended for us to have at this moment in uh, world history so that we can see Jesus all throughout the Bible and since God loves the Son who he sent to redeem us, it's God's delight to fill the Old Testament with the Son he loves. The Father loves the Son, there's no doubt about that, and God wants to put his Son on display. Uh, again, when we read the book of Hebrews, it tells us that the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, hey, in times past, God spoke through a multitude of different ways, but now he has spoken to us by his son. And so the Old Testament prophets weren't like, oh, we're going to do our thing until Jesus comes. The Old Testament prophets were, were doing our things to point forward to when the son will come. And so it's not a matter of like, oh, yeah, back in the day it used to be the prophets and now it's Jesus. It's like back in the day the prophets were pointing forward towards Jesus Christ himself. And so we look at typology. Typology involves recognizing similarities and connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament where certain people, places, objects, or events in the Old Testament are seen as representing or anticipating corresponding realities in the New Testament. I had a, a course that I took in Bible college on typology. I found it fascinating. I thought it was really interesting and I took a lot of really good notes from it. Uh, I can't find any of my notes as I looked from this uh, last few weeks. It's like, I don't even have my notes anymore from that class. But um, somebody's special request, and I won't tell you who it is because they'll get a big head, uh, put in the special request of Joseph as a type of Christ. That was one of the topics that they submitted. And I thought, man, why stop at Joseph? Like, there's so many. Like, and I began to, like, make a list in my head of all the different types of Christ that I could just think of off the top of my head. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Like, this could be. It's not going to be. And so, so don't get too nervous. This could be a 52-week sermon series where we talk about the types of Christ, and we would never run out of content. And some of you are saying, like, Please don't make us do this for a week. I didn't say we're going to do it for a year. I'm saying we could. Because, again, as we read through the scriptures, it's like, ooh, that's so good. Oh, that's so good. Or, oh, this is how it points to the Christ. Or, oh, how, this is how it points to the crucifixion. Oh, this is what points to propitiation. Oh, this is what points towards justification. And there's just so much good stuff simply in the Old Testament. Another... Um, Definition that I came across, typology is God-ordained, author-intended, historical correspondence and escalation in significance between people, events, institutions across the Bible's redemptive historical story. If that doesn't sound like a textbook collegiate uh, definition, I don't know what is. But here's the idea. In the Bible, things, people, uh, places pointed forwards towards the New Testament to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's typology. Hey, let's find those in the Old Testament. As we study through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5 is going to get us there to what, again, if someone were doing a typology study in the Bible, the very first person that they would choose for typology would be who? Somebody help me. Adam, the first man, hello. Uh, so we would say, we're going to start there at, at Adam, right? Well, Romans chapter 5, which we're going to preach on Sunday mornings, already gets into Adam. So our first type of Christ that we're going to talk about actually won't be Adam. We're going to skip that one so we can save it for Sunday morning. But here's the idea behind that, that Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hey, Adam was a type of Jesus Christ. Adam was pointing us forward to who Jesus was. By one man, sin entered into the world, and by one man, righteousness has come as well. And so the Bible tells us that, that Adam was the first Adam and that Jesus Christ would be the last Adam. And so, so many similarities that we can draw from that, but the first man that was created, Jesus Christ, was the first begotten of the Father. And, and so again, so many different ways we can look at that and see beautiful pictures of what is to come uh, from there. 
We get the, the, the term typology, obviously not found in the Bible anywhere, but the word typology comes from the Greek word typos. The word typos means a blow, something that's struck, a stamp, or an impression. And the idea is that when something hits something, it leaves a mark or an indention. And so we see as Adam enters into biblical history, he makes a mark on history that leaves an impression of what is to come is the idea behind the word typology. When you speak of types, types will have, uh, these are the three parts that are required for a biblical type. First of all, a type. Uh, this is the, one author put it this way, and I love this phrase, so I'm going to use it. A promise-shaped pattern. And so this example that we have here, Adam, is a, a promise-shaped pattern of what is to come, Christ. Then we have the anti-type, which is the fulfillment of that type. So in our example that we have here, Adam is the type, Christ is the anti-type. And then every type has to have some type of Christological significance. It has to point to Jesus in some way. When we talk about biblical typology, we'll see this in a little bit, we're looking for pictures of Christ, not pictures of random things. It's not like, oh, the Red Sea is a type of the Sea of Galilee. You know, the Israelites went there and got to the edge, and there was a, uh, people coming behind them. They thought they were going to die. That's a, that's a foreshadowing of the Sea of Galilee where the apostles were on the ship with, with Jesus. And we don't look for types in bodies of water. As we study the Bible, the subject of the Bible is Jesus Christ. We're looking for the significance of Jesus Christ uh, in events that take place in the Old Testament. Now, <laughs> we see in uh, Romans chapter 4, verse number 14 is in your notes here nevertheless death reigned from adam to moses even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of adam's transgression who is the figure that word figure of him that was to come the word figure is the greek word typos t-y-p-o-s hey adam was a type of him that was to come he was a shadow he was a pattern he was a mark uh, to show us what was to come. And so that word is used here and in a couple of the other places throughout the New Testament to speak of, uh, of what we're looking for in the Old Testament as we look forward to, towards Christ. Now, it's important to understand as we look at typology through the Bible, there's some ground rules that we need to set. And so we're going to set those tonight as we begin to jump off next week at, to begin to look for types of Christ in the Bible. But some of the ground rules is, first and foremost, this. you got to get this straight. This doesn't deal with just typology. It deals with the Bible altogether. The author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. You cannot get around this. Uh, and so did God use human authors? Absolutely. He used them to use their own vocabulary, their own personality, their own life experiences to communicate a truth that came directly from the Holy Spirit of God. You cannot get around the fact that the entire Bible was written by the Holy Spirit. Again, 2 Timothy 3.16, if you've taken our discipleship course here at Huicala, week one, Bible verse one, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures given by inspiration of God, the word inspiration is the Greek word theonoustos, breathed out by God himself, every single word of scripture. It's not a matter of like, and again, this is a pet peeve of mine sometimes when, well, Paul used this phrase, and he probably should have used a different phrase. No, no, no. Paul didn't use that phrase. The Holy Spirit of God used that phrase, and we don't get to correct that. Now, now, hold on. Sometimes we get to a passage like we've been at in Romans 5, where the word patience is used. That word patience is an English word that, you, that describes a Greek word that Paul actually wrote. That word patience, when it was written in 1611, might not mean exactly what we want it to mean today from an understanding perspective. So that word patience could mean perseverance or strength under pressure it's not wrong to say uh, this english translation word could have been used as a different translation of that english word but to say that paul shouldn't have said x uh, is to question the holy spirit one of the most foolish things i've ever read in my entire life uh, several years ago the the pope came out and said that uh, they were gonna they were voting on a revision to the lord's prayer it's like, first of all, do you, do you understand how foolish that sounds? Hey, Jesus said something, and I think we're going to revise it. We shouldn't ask the Lord not to lead us into temptation because God doesn't tempt anybody. And so we need to revise that and ask God to keep us from temptation, not to not lead us into temptation. And so he made a request that we revise the Lord's Prayer. 
You can't say that Jesus messed up the way that he said something. You can't even, get this, stay with me, you can't even say that when the, uh, the people who wrote the Bible wrote that down, they miswrote it because the word of God is the word of God. And we believe in scriptural preservation. That God who has spoken his word will also keep his word to all generations. If the Bible's been corrupt or, or can't be trusted, we're in a whole world of hope, a world of hurt anyways, and we've lost all sense of hope. Uh, for sure, in the Word of God. So, human authors, as they wrote Scripture, would have had a very limited understanding of future events. For example, when God told Moses, hey Moses, I want you to kill a Passover lamb. When the this last plague is coming to Egypt, I want you to kill a lamb. It has to be a lamb without blemish or spot. Take its blood, put it upon the lintels of the doorpost. And when the death angel comes, he will pass over and won't kill anybody in your house. I don't think Moses says, oh, this is a type of Jesus Christ. This is speaking, obviously, of the day that the Savior, the Messiah, will come and deliver us from our sins and the blood of Christ will be applied to our accounts and God's judgment and wrath will pass over us because of the Messiah. Oh, I get it. Thank you. As he wrote, he says, hey, here's what God says, and he just wrote it. And so our human authors that, that penned the Bible would have had a very, very limited understanding. Moses, get this, Moses wouldn't have been smart enough to think like, Hey, I'm going to leave a little something open for John when he writes his gospel, that if he wants to use the whole, like, Passover thing, he can use that. You know, hey, whoever decides to write Hebrews one day, I'm going to leave a few breadcrumbs for them to follow so that they'll really know where to pick up on this story, because it might be useful to them later. Because the Holy Spirit is the author of all of the Bible. Again, if you were to think about it this way, I, I usually sometimes use this, uh, Bible was put together and how it's a supernatural book random me and three other guys are going to write a book on the state of hawaii just going to write it well all of us are going to write one chapter one chapter and then we're going to smash those four chapters together and we're going to send it to print not going to be proof not going to collaborate we're just going to do our part well well what are you going to write about well i'm going to write about you know my experience here, or I'm going to write about the weather, I'm going to write about, you know, church planning in the state of Hawaii, I'm going to write about the, the impact of the gospel in Hawaii, you're going to write about, you know, uh, the, you know, marine biology studies, smash them together and send them to print, it would be the most chaotic nonsense, not to mention it would contradict itself all over the place. But to have a book that was written over a period of 1,500 years by a, a plethora of different authors from different backgrounds, some of them are farmers, some of them are homeless prophets, some of them were, uh, you know, great leaders. Some of them were fishermen. We're just going to take those and smash them together and bind them in one leather-bound edition and send it to print. And it all fits together perfectly without a single solitary contradiction. How can that happen? It has to be a supernatural book. Because you couldn't get enough human authors together with that much wisdom that could just throw something like this together and it just works. To the point that people have been trying for 2,000 years to tear apart inconsistencies in the Bible and places where the Bible doesn't agree, only to find out that the Bible still stands. It's a faithful book. It's a supernatural book. I was sharing Jesus classes this Saturday. Just one final plug for that. You've got to sign up for it tonight if you want to come. But one of the things that I teach in that is to ask people questions uh, to stimulate conversation. Well, I don't believe the Bible because it's full of contradictions. Like what? Well, well, there's lots of them. Okay, name 10. If there's lots. Well, I don't know about 10. Okay, name three. Name three contradictions that you can find in the Bible. And the majority of people can't name a single one because, first of all, they don't exist. Second of all, nobody's really studied that. They just use that as a reason not to believe. And so, uh, again, when it comes to a book that stands the test of time, the Word of God has because it was, was uh, penned by human authors, but it was written by the Holy Spirit of God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse number 21, For prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Numbers chapter 21, think about this. Numbers 21 is in your notes here. It speaks of the, the brazen serpent. There were uh, snakes that were turned loose that were uh, killing people. Therefore, the people came to Moses and says, we've sinned and we've spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away these serpents from us. And Moses prayed the people and the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it up on a pole. It shall come to pass that everyone that's bitten when he looketh on it shall live. 
And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And it came to pass that that serpent had bitten any man. When he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, what is Moses doing? He's just writing about an instance that happened. Fascinating instance. Moses makes a, a serpent out of brass, puts it on a stick. Everybody who looks to that serpent lives. And Moses just copies down what happened. Not knowing that the Holy Spirit had inspired Moses in that situation, for that situation, and to pen that so that Jesus Christ one day, as he sits at night talking to a man by the name of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, says to Nicodemus, hey man, just like the serpent was held up on the pole, so anyone who looks to the Son of Man shall also live. What is that? Typology. You, you and I can see that Jesus points back to the brazen serpent in Numbers here and says, hey, that's me that it's talking about. And so again, we see explicit cases of typology as we point back through uh, Scripture here, even with Jesus himself. Types are ultimately designed by God to forecast Christological realities. Understand, every single one of these events, people, places, were designed to point to Jesus. Now, mind you, at the time when people were being bitten by snakes and dying, which I think is the worst death you could possibly die, I hate snakes with every fiber of my being. They're satanic. People who have snakes as pets, I, I, I worry about you. You don't know Jesus. Um, be, because, again, the devil is a snake, and he's a liar, just like snakes. Uh, but can you imagine getting bitten by a snake and dying and God being like, oh, yeah, this is good. This is good. This is really good. This is according to my plan. You'd be like, what kind of crazy plan is that, that people would die by being bitten by snakes? Because I'm setting up something really good in the future. And you and I can't fully grasp sometimes right now, even in our life, when certain things happen, God's like, oh yeah, this is good. I'm setting up something in the future. Because God is, is sovereign over all. Even the events of history were designed by God to point us to Jesus Christ. So we think about the Bible. God tells us of his son in direct and indirect ways. Sometimes it comes out and explicitly talks to Jesus. Other times uh, it's maybe a little bit less clear. When we think of direct prophecies of Jesus Christ, we think of uh, things like Isaiah 53. Clear prophecy of Jesus Christ, speaking about the suffering of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the beating of Christ, uh, how he would come and nobody would really recognize him for who he was. That's a direct prophecy speaking of Jesus Christ. When we see prophets uh, prophesy that Christ will be born in Bethlehem, explicit, direct prophecy of Jesus Christ. And so as we see certain passages, hey, it's obviously speaking of Jesus Christ. Psalm 22, we refer to as a messianic psalm. As we, you and I read that, it's obviously talking about Jesus Christ. Now again, I think the psalmist, as he wrote, just wrote uh, what he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to, but at the time, but pointing forward with prophecy to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So those things are really clear indications of the future of Jesus Christ. But indirect prophecies are a little bit tougher to pick up on. Indirect prophecies are less explicit. and can be hidden in plain sight. They don't come out and say, hey, this is about Jesus Christ. Hey, this is about the coming Messiah. Hey, this is about the one who will set us free from our sins. And the Passover lamb just being an example of that. Exodus chapter 12, verse number 23. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood on the lintel and upon the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. So we look at that and they go, we'll be like, oh, that's a cool story. That's just another one of the plagues. That's kind of like a, a plague like the frogs, right? No, 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 no. Totally different plague than the frogs. Frogs don't point forward to Jesus Christ. Death, judgment, wrath, punishment, being absolved by blood applied to your household. Oh, that absolutely, 100% points towards Jesus Christ. But again, if we're not looking for Christ in the Old Testament, we'll just miss that as just, hey, it's just another story of the Passover. The Passover is a picture of Jesus Christ. And so there's direct prophecies, indirect prophecies that we have to uh, dig a little bit deeper for. When we speak of, again, ground rules that we're talking about before we dive into typology, uh, our first type next week. Biblical typology 
always points to Jesus. We sometimes talk about the heroes of the faith. Hebrews chapter 11 has a list we sometimes call the hall of faith or heroes of the faith. And we begin to talk about heroes like Abraham and Moses and Joshua and even Joseph. And we talk about other heroes in the Bible like David and stuff like that. People who really did great things for God and, and stuff like that. Please understand the hero of the Bible is always Jesus Christ. Understand that we will misunderstand the Bible. Biblical types always point to Jesus, not to Moses, not to Mary, not to anybody else. The biblical types, when we look at for them, always point back to the person of Jesus Christ. One of my big time pet peeves is the story of David and Goliath. I know you're going through a rough time. I know you're going through a rough spot. I want you to get up tomorrow morning. I want you to read the Word of God. I want you to put on uh, your belt with your five smooth stones in your pocket. I want you to go into your workplace, and I want you to slay that Goliath. Amen. No. No, no, no. That's not the story of David and Goliath. The story of David and Goliath is that you and I are scared Israelites, that the enemy has come to our front doorstep and threatens to take our life and we are scared and running for the hills and we all cry out, who will save us? Then the Son of God appears to be our hero, to deliver us from not a giant, but from the giant of our sin. And he slays him as only he could in a way that no one can can deny and he does it in a grand fashion and as he cuts off the head of the giant you and i rejoice and celebrate and the devil flees <laughs> that's the story of david and goliath you and i aren't david you and i are the scared israelites sitting on the side uh, biting our fingernails Amen. jesus christ is always the hero of the bible always and so he's the we'll unpack stories like that Biblical typology will always point to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, and this is important, again, Colossians chapter 1. This is super important. Colossians 1 verse number 16 is in your notes. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created by him, speaking of Jesus Christ, and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. God the Father says, all praise goes to God the Son. In him is all the fullness of all that we desire. In him is the reason that everything exists, continues to exist, because of Jesus Christ. So when you and I read the Bible and we become the hero of the story, you need to understand, I think you got the story mixed up somewhere. When you read the story and Mary becomes the, the hero of the story, you got the story mixed up somewhere. And, and even really good, good heroes of the Bible, Joseph did a great thing, but Joseph isn't the ultimate hero. He's pointing us forward to a greater hero, a superhero, if you will. Does that make sense? So again, as we unpack the Bible, it's important that we understand that Jesus, it's all about him. Jesus is always the hero of the story. And in the church, he requires the preeminence. So typology must coexist with good exegesis. <laughs> this means... You and I have to be careful as we look for types in the Old Testament. You can't just grab some random thing and begin to, to make it a type. Hey, was Cain a type of Christ? I mean, he did get killed by his brother, like Jesus got killed by the Jews. Is he a type? I don't know. Let's study the Bible and find out. Well, no, I think it is. You can't think types into existence. Because, get this, Types are created by the Holy Spirit himself. Again, if the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, and he is, these pictures of what is to come were purposely put there by the Holy Spirit of God. You and I can't just make something into a type because we feel like it. It requires good exegesis. What is exegesis? I'm glad you asked. It's the critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of Scripture, 
which literally means the drawing out of. It is always the goal of any honest Bible scholar, Bible student, Bible Christian, or Bible preacher to exegete the text. What does the Bible itself say? What is written here in the text? What can we glean from the context? Who is this written to? Who is it written by? Who is the intended audience? Uh, what happened before this passage? What happens after this passage? What does this mean in the context of this? How does this relate to the ancient language of the day? We're digging into the depths of the text itself. As opposed to, uh, say, for example, love. We're going to talk about love today. We love God because he loved us. And Jesus said we should love one another. And, you know, love takes a lot of different flavors. And, you know, I love my wife, but I also love pizza. And I love you. And I love the church. And, like, uh, let's, let's have a word of prayer. We're just going to be a church of love. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. That's not exegesis at all. That's a bunch of nonsense meandering through the Bible. That's not helpful. We're helpful when we find out what does the Bible say. Not what do I want the Bible to say, but what does it actually say? That requires exegesis. Exegesis goes hand in hand with expository Bible preaching, verse by verse preaching, where we look at the text and begin to dig in and say, what does this actually mean? And expository preaching will expose the text for what it actually is. And so when you and I are looking for types of Christ in the Bible, we have to dig it out of the text, not like, oh, I had a really good idea when I was driving home from work the other day. What if, you know, what if the Egyptians were a type of Christ, right? I mean, they, like, they were rich. Stop that. Read throughout the Bible. Egypt is always a picture of sin. It's always a picture of the world. Pharaoh was a wicked ruler who was under God's judgment. You can't draw a line where there's not a line. You can't make up your own text. It has to, your own, your own types. They have to come from the text itself. That's critical. And so good exegesis is important. Eisegesis. Do not do this. If you're taking notes right out beside, don't do this. Eisegesis is the process of interpreting text in such a way as to introduce one's own presuppositions, agendas, or biases. Hey, I think the text means this, so this must be what it means. For example, I have heard somebody say before, the passage that we read in the book of Luke, right? That Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with two of his apostles. Heard it before. If you read the text, Luke chapter 24, you'll find that he's not on the road with two apostles. It could be, it could not be. Who's Cleopas? We don't know. He's really not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Now, there's a Cleophas in the book of John. But Cleopas isn't one of the 12 apostles. What was the other one an apostle? I don't know. That's reading a presupposition into it to say that those two men were apostles because the text itself doesn't say that. I mean, if, you're, if your Bible's still open in Luke chapter 24, read um, verse number 12. So Mary Magdalene uh, went and told these things to the apostles, verse number 10, and their words seemed like they were idle tales. I'm in Luke 24, verse number 12. Then arose Peter, ran down to the sepulcher, and behold, two of them went that same day. Two of what? Maybe two of the apostles. But we know that Cleopas wasn't one of the apostles on there. So two of them were on the road to Emmaus. So Cleopas and another guy that may or may not have been an apostle. If you're saying that the other guy was an apostle, you're guilty of eisegesis. It's just not there. Well, it could have been. Yeah, it could have been. It could have been an unbeliever. It could have been the guy's gardener that went with him. You know, it could have been the dog sitter. It could have been anybody. So when, when we, it's not there, we're reading into the text. Um, some people, for uh, the sake of uh, infant baptism, have used the case of the Philippian jailer who got saved, and then his household was baptized as a result. And so the Philippian jailer got saved, and then they baptized him and his household. Well, see, I mean, like, like there were probably babies in the house, so they got baptized too. Well, there were probably cats in the household too, but they didn't get baptized, or did they? If they did, then we have a case for feline baptism, right? Again, you're reading things into the text that just aren't there. If you read, again, the totality of Scripture, you realize nobody ever gets baptized without being saved first, anywhere in the Bible. So to take one passage and say, well, there must have been kids in the household that got baptized. 
because Philippian jailers were known to have kids. Where is that in the text, you know? They were known to have lots of babies, both Philippian jailers. Where is that in the text? It's not there. That's eisegesis. I'm coming to the passage with, a, with what I want it to say or a, a presupposition. And here's the thing. Not all presuppositions are necessarily sinful or wrong, but we need to recognize them for what they were. For example, I've heard pastors preach before. When Jesus was there on the cross, when they were putting him on that cross and crucifying, they put three nails in him, one in each of his hands and one through both of his feet. Three nails held my Savior to the cross. And no lie, I, I heard that my entire life growing up, only to realize reading the Bible for myself one day. You know what they said about when they crucified Jesus? It says this, no lie, look it up for yourself. And they crucified him. That was it. No story about nails, no story about how many nails or how they did or anything like that. Well, we can look back to, you know, Roman tradition of the way they do it. We can do that. But to say that that's what happened would have been eisegesis. To say that it was three nails, we can't say that because it's not in the text. Now, again, this gets taken to a whole nother level when people want to make the Bible say what they want it to say. For example, uh, the United Church of Christ, which is an apostate organization, they're not truly Christians, they're not the Church of Christ at all, uh, totally liberal, uh, apostate church for sure. One of their female pastors, which should be a red flag for anybody who actually knows your Bible, this past week as part of her reading online that she does, rewrote Psalm 51 from Bathsheba's perspective. <laughs> right? I'm glad that your reaction was the same as mine. And she talked about how she had been violated and how she had been wronged by men in powerful positions and how men had taken their religion and, and made it about them and about God, but she was the one who had been sinned against and been wronged and all this other stuff. Hey, look, first of all, that's wicked, it's blasphemous, and that's eisegesis on the 10 millionth level, okay? We don't have any word from Bathsheba in scriptures, therefore we should keep our mouths shut about what she said. So again, we need to be really, really careful that we're not drawing lines in the Bible where there aren't lines. Uh, again, we talked about this when uh, John spoke uh, about end times and prophecy a few weeks ago. That many times people will take, say that the Old Testament uh, children of Israel is a picture of the New Testament church. And all the, the promises that were given to Israel are now given to the church. That now, you know, God has forgotten Israel and divorced Israel. And you and I are now the replacement bride of Christ. Now again, you can draw a lot of lines there, but you can't prove it from the text itself. Well, look at this verse. It says, blessed the, uh, who's the nation whose God is the Lord. That's talking about America right there. America was not a place when that was written, okay? Like America is like fairly new when it comes to like world history, you know? When it comes to biblical history, we're a couple thousand years removed from that. So when uh, the Bible says that, it wasn't talking about America per se. Now, are there principles we can glean from it? For sure. But to say that that means America is eisegesis on the worst level. And so we can't make the Bible say what we want it to say. For example, <laughs> there's a guy I've been talking with trying to, to help get his theology and, 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 and pneumatology, which is to study the Holy Spirit straight. The Bible says that you and I will not battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and uh, spiritual wickedness in high places. That means that there is a network of satanic influence in our city that points us towards sin and is drawing us in. That's what the, the, the text itself means. Dig into the text, find out what it says. But you take someone who comes at something with a Pentecostal presupposition, that means that there are them authority over and cast down and demons and call them by name and rebuke them in the name of Jesus because the Bible says that you and I are to look for spiritual wickedness in high places. That's not what the text means. But it could mean that. It could mean a lot of other things too, but that's not what the text says. And so eisegesis takes place when you and I already have an idea of what we want the text to say, and we read that in. That's a very, very dangerous place to be. And so, again, we have to exegete. I want what God has already given me, not what I think maybe God could have possibly. He is an attempt to interpret what is there in the text, not what is not in the text. 
I, I underlined that on the, on the screen for you, not because that's the blank that you're supposed to fill in, but because I want you to understand the Bible is the Word of God. It's our final authority. Don't try to add to it. Don't try to subtract from it. Just go with what's there. Amen. Always. Well, don't you think that God, you know, would want, you know, somebody who's maybe been divorced a few times to find happiness one day? That's not what the text says. The Bible's really clear on that. Sorry. Well, you know, can't love just be love and people can just love each other regardless of, of what their, you know, uh, orientation is. That's not what the text says. And I live, my, live and die by the word of God. And so again, if you choose to do that, that's fine. You can't ask me to say that that's okay, though, because I can't. Because I live and die by the word of God. And so you and I, even when we're looking at things like type, which again, at the end of the day, typology is one of those things that's interesting. It helps us to see the Bible in a new perspective or a new light. It helps us to love Jesus more and see him as greater than he already has been. But if we take this too far, we begin to draw lines where God didn't draw lines and make presuppositions and decisions that God didn't want us to make about who Jesus Christ is. And so really, really careful with that. Typological exegesis assumes divine sovereignty over history. Again, as we dig into the Bible, we automatically assume that God is sovereign even over historical events. <laughs> the parting of the Red Sea didn't happen without God being there. <laughs> the water that came out of a rock took place because God allowed water to flow from a rock. So, again, get this. They're in a desert. There's nothing to drink. They're all about to die. They're murmuring, they're complaining. And what does God do? God brings water from the most unlikely source possible. It is from a rock. And water comes forth and everyone drinks. Is the water from the rock a type of Christ? Mm, could be. Very good evidence of that. Let's dig into the text and see what it says. Oh, I think the stick that Moses used as he hit the rock was a type of Christ. Because Christ, when you use him, you just whack stuff with Jesus, like good stuff flows out. Let's look at what the text says, right? You see, you see how this could get out of hand really, really quickly, if we're not careful. This is not like you and I making up stuff as we go. What does the Bible itself have to say about this? And, and so even those events, water coming from a rock, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, the 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 uh, destroyer coming and taking out the firstborn son in every household in Egypt. God was sovereign over every single one of those events. And so as we look at typology, we see that nothing that's recorded for us in biblical history was recorded by accident. None of it. I don't know about you, but if you've ever gotten to like First Chronicles before and start reading like the first like three chapters and your eyes start to cross, you're just like, so-and-so began, so-and-so. And so all that's there by design. Don't skip it. Don't read over it. Find out why it's there. Find out what it points to. Find out why it's significant or it's important. You read the genealogies of Christ, it'll blow your mind when you study who these people are, right? So it's all there for a reason. Don't skip over it. God's sovereign over every part of even history. And typology is exegesis, not even on a specific specific text itself but typology is an exegesis across the entire canon of scripture so this is not a matter of simply what does this one particular verse or this one particular phrase say typology zooms out and says hey let's take a look at how this part of the bible connects with this part of the bible which may be really really distant uh, in time and maybe even pages of the bible but the idea is this is that god has placed in his word for you and I things to help us grow and things to point us to Jesus Christ himself. Two final thoughts and we're done here tonight. First of all, God never intended to create multiple disjointed stories, but a beautiful story that crescendos with his ultimate glory with his people for eternity. Oh, man. Again, I, here, I, was, I must have been sleeping in church this day or when I was a kid or something like that. I used to just think the Bible's just a collection of a bunch of stories that, that point to, uh, you know, trust God. You know, Joseph, it's just a picture of trusting God. Is it? A, a son who is highly favored by his father and given a special gift that none of, no one else got. 
was hated by his brothers and sold into slavery and was placed in a prison which just happened to be underground, kind of like where you would bury someone. And after a certain period of time came, he rose to be the second in command over the most powerful nation in the entire world. Is Jesus just, or is Joseph just a picture of God's faithfulness? Or is it something a little bit more? This is something a little bit more. Abraham and Isaac. Is that just a story of a guy who just needed to trust God a little bit? Or is that a picture of a, a father who is willing to sacrifice his sons for deliverance? I think it's a little bit bigger than that. Take a look again at David, a young man who grew up to be the first good king of Israel, whose kingdom, whose throne would know no end. Was he just a boy who was a shepherd and grew up to be a king? Or was it something bigger? This is not just a bunch of, of hodgepodge stories put together to entertain us until we get to the New Testament. It's a picture in the Old Testament of how God, before he spoke the world into existence, already had a plan that ended with the culmination of him with his people forever in a new heaven and a new earth, singing his praise, giving glory to his son for all of eternity, and we get to see all the parts in the middle that connect all the dots. This is beautiful. Like, it's not a bunch of hodgepodge stories thrown together that we tell in Sunday school and we just move on with life. Manna in the wilderness, was that a picture of Christ? I don't know, but we're getting ready to find out. You know, Noah and the ark, was Noah a type of Christ? Were Noah's sons a type of Christ? You know, Was the ark a type of Christ? Was the flood a type of Christ? Right? Was, was Noah's wife a type of Christ? I don't know. Again, wh where do we find the answer? We find the answer in the word. Is it there or is it not? I no lie. As I've been studying for this, I came across a, a passage in uh, in the Gospels that that absolutely blew my mind. Like like again, I, I've been around the Bible for four decades. I've gone to Bible college. I've read the Bible through cover to cover dozens of times, and I came across something that pointed back to the Old Testament as a picture of Jesus Christ. And my head, you got to hear this, and she's just like. Oh, that's cool. No, 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 you don't see. Like, I mean, just absolutely blew my mind. What was it? I'm not going to tell you. I'm saving it for later, okay? So it's really, really good. I don't want to steal my thunder tonight, right? I'm going to save it for another day. No, but again, the idea here is the Bible's just not these just cute little stories that cause us to trust God. It's, it's this swelling story that continues to pulsate until we finally see Jesus Christ for who he is. And then one day we'll really get to see Jesus Christ in all of his beauty and all of his glory. That's the idea behind the Bible. And so again, our goal of the study of typology is that Jesus would be clearer and more beautiful than ever. We're going to finish the same place we started in Luke chapter 24. If you close your Bible, open it back up to Luke 24 tonight. <laughs> we stopped at verse number 28. And they drew nigh into the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone a little further. So Jesus pretended like he was going to leave. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening. And the, far, the day is far spent, and he went to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it, and they break. And he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. Get this. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he did what? Opened to us the scriptures. <laughs> Like, th like, they didn't just like, oh, that was a great talk we had, wasn't it? Like, no, 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 no. Our hearts burned as he explained and opened to us the scriptures and told us how they spoke of him. That's, again, if we can get to the end of the study of typology and you're like, wow, I see Jesus better and more clearly, man, we will have won. Like, that's the whole goal of this. Uh, the, the, please understand, the goal of typology is not to be like, go to work tomorrow. It's like, do you know what typology is? I do now. 
did you know that Noah's wife is actually a type of Christ? It's just like, okay, first of all, you weren't listening tonight, okay? Uh, I didn't say that. And I think you'd have a hard time proving that from the text. But um, the goal is not to, to puff out our chest and go, I know what typology is. Do you? The goal of this is for you and I to find the Bible as, as a rich, rich book. That it's not like, okay, tomorrow morning I'm in the book of Jonah. Here's the story of Jonah and the whale. I guess I'll go ahead and read it anyways. You're like, is Jonah a type of Christ? Uh, Jesus himself said it. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be in the earth for three days and rise again. So Jonah was a type of Christ. That's, that's what was drawn by Jesus himself. So if you read the book of Jonah, like, hey, this isn't just about a guy who rebelled against God and got, stuck, got thrown overboard. Like, let me see where I can find Jesus in Jonah. Man, that's fascinating stuff. And so I encourage you, as you read your Bible tomorrow, regardless of where you're at, look for Jesus. Can you find him? He's there, guaranteed. You don't have to look very hard, but uh, you, you might have to be intentional about your reading, and I hope that you will. As you go through this study, I want you to uh, dig in deeper and be willing to, to do some legwork on your own. you got some ideas in your mind of what might be a type of Christ. Do not do this. Let me tell you this. This is I'm, final instruction. I'm done. Don't go home tonight and Google top ten types of Christ, okay? You're a cheater if you do that. <laughs> You're a cheater. Don't go to chat GPT and say, explain to me how Joseph is a type of Christ. You're a cheater. Dig into the Bible for yourself. Like you probably read Cliff Notes in high school is the type of person you are. Some of you don't even know what Cliff Notes are, but it's for cheaters, okay? Don't be a cheater. Dig into the Bible. You'll find some good stuff there this week for sure. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.